0: Happy Twin Cities Marathon Day. Have any of you run that race on here? All right, they're out running it, I suppose. Well, I used to be a runner and my favorite races were relay races. Loved relay races. Somebody, you guys, some of you had to run relay races before, right? All right, relay races. I loved relay races. I didn't go for track until my senior year of high school and my first race ever Um, of my first track season was a relay race. It was a relay race on an indoor track. It was a four by 800 meter relay. Now, being a competitive person, this isn't going to surprise you at all, Laura. Um, I looked up the school indoor record, right? First race ever. And I'm looking up the school record to say, what is it? Can we do it? And I look it up and I do the math in my head and I'm thinking of the other guys I'm running this with and I'm thinking, I think we can do it. I think we can set the school indoor record but I knew it wouldn't be easy. Um, I've now competed in most races from the 400 meter up to the marathon, and every one of those races is painful. The marathon is certainly the most prolonged pain of them all, but the most intense pain is the 800 meters. Can I get an amen from any of my middle distance people? It is, isn't it? It is intense. To be competitive in the 800, you have to maintain a sprint level speed for about half a mile. And that is not easy to do. And when you hit that 600-meter mark, every internal gauge you have is redlining. Every gauge you've got, every organ in your body is saying, stop. And your mind is trying to tell your flesh, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. Ooh. Well, one of the reasons I love relay races, one of the reasons I love relay races, is when you're waiting for the handoff, when you get this baton, you're waiting for that handoff you're just, you're the you're biggest fan, right? You are cheering for that person who's coming in because you want to get that thing in good position. And when you have the relay baton in your hand, now all of a sudden, the other your teammates are your biggest fans, right? Because they want you to run well. And then when you hand it off, you are the biggest fan of that person who's running now because you want them to finish strong. And so in a relay race, you've got this great cloud of witnesses, who are cheering one another on when it gets hard. Well, we did set a new school record that day. And what felt like a sacrifice at the time was certainly overshadowed, right? By the joy of having done your best, by the joy of representing your school, honoring the efforts of your teammates, and all that. Well, for the last four weeks, we've been digging into a book of the Bible that reminds us, it reminds us as directly as you can, that our race is going to come to an end. Every one of us. We have a mortal lifespan, Whatever that's going to be. When your day comes. Or when it draws near. How are you going to feel? How are you going to feel about your leg of that race? Because that day is coming for everybody. How will you feel? That's, that's where Ecclesiastes takes us. To that real place. Well, let's get started on this conversation then today. And I want to encourage you to to take out your notes and write this down as, as we start into a conversation about stuff today. Shifting to a stewardship paradigm can change your life. That is not an understatement. That is not an overstatement. That is an understatement. Switching over to a stewardship paradigm, and I'll talk a little bit about that here, that can change your life. The book of the Bible that we've been exploring in this series is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, it is real. It is raw. It is unflinchingly honest. You know, among other things, Ecclesiastes reminds us time is short. Time is short. And we only get one shot at this race that we're in. Destiny is the, death is the destiny of everyone, the teacher in Ecclesiastes writes, and the living should take this to heart. Now, this teacher, who is quoted for most of Ecclesiastes, this teacher had the power and the perks of a king. And most of Ecclesiastes describes and reflects on some tests that this teacher tested, these tests. These tests that the teacher attempted to do with a search for joy and meaning. And the test that we're going to look at today is, is about stuff. Stuff. In a relay race, runners operate under a stewardship paradigm. We recognize that baton is not ours. The uniform we're wearing, it's not ours. We are stewarding these things during this race. It is not ours to keep. We are stewards of a moment. And what matters most is to run your race well before we then hand off to those who come after us. When you're living life, from a stewardship paradigm, you're doing the same. You're recognizing everything I have. I can't take any of this with me. I can't. In this race, when the race is done, I can't take any of this with me. So what I can do is steward it well. Steward it well. The teacher in Ecclesiastes <laughs> describes a very different paradigm and does a very different test. He explored what happens. Let me just make this all about me. Let this be all about myself. Earlier in the season, in the series, we looked at how many times, myself, 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 myself. It shows up all over that book, especially early on. What if I make it all about myself? With a show of hands, how do you know how that's, how that's going to end? How many of you know how that's going to end when you make it all about yourself, right? We know this. We know that's not going to end well. If you make it all about yourself, 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 you get to the end of that race. It's been repeated billions of times in human history. If it's all about you, 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 you get to the end of that race, you don't feel great. You look back with a lot of regret. The irony of selfish living is that it ultimately works against your self-interest. So, here's the thing. We could spend the next 30 minutes just railing and ranting about the wrongness of materialism and we could tout the benefits of minimalism and then we could be done but ecclesiastes if we're going to follow the spirit of that book it takes us deeper than that it we we can't stop there and that's why i put this dangerous little next thing in your notes here and that's this actions are the true measure of what we believe can i get an amen to that Actions are the true measure of what we believe. So let's look at what Ecclesiastes teaches about stuff, but we're not going to stop there. Then what we're going to do, we're going to hold up a mirror to ourselves. And it is going to be 800 meter painful. Let me do. I can just tell you right now, if you're going to be honest, when it comes to stuff, we all have a broken relationship with stuff, right? So, but that's where we're going to go. It's going to be a good hurt though. It's going to be a good hurt. So, ready? Here we go. If you have your Bible with you, open with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to go verses 8 through 20. We're going to start with just verse 5, 8. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to go home with one free today. It does this great job of holding up a mirror, but it does it in such a way that's hopeful, right? And so we'd love for you to go home with a Bible. We keep them there in the back. We'd love for you to take one home. All right, here we go. Ecclesiastes 5, 8. And we'll start by pointing some fingers at others. All right, here we go. 5.8, Five eight. if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. All right, so what's being said here is pretty straightforward. Don't be surprised if you look out in the world and you see corrupt people. Don't be surprised. And don't be surprised if you see that corruption in any any part along that authority chain. In the Bible, the words rich and wicked don't just appear together often. They are even sometimes used interchangeably. Wow. So pick your economic system, capitalism, socialism, communism, monarchy. If the system involves people... The people in it will often exploit others for their own personal gain. All right, that takes us to verse 9. Verse 9 says this, But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So what he's saying here is the best defense you've got against corruption is to have the person at the top be anti-corruption. Then you at least have a chance. You at least have a chance. But he goes on to say that kings are corrupted too, you know, as are all of us. And then now he's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about stuff and the corrupting power that corrupts people at every every part of that authority chain. It also is at work in our lives as well. So no more pointing fingers at others. Here we go, looking at ourselves. Uh, 5.10 says this, he or she who loves money, will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. What is that word in Hebrew? It's hevel. It's that word hevel. It's like a vapor. It's just something you just, you can't grab on to it. Countless studies, countless studies validate the finding here of his test. Countless ones. When people are surveyed, when people are asked how much is enough, people believe enough is just a little bit more you see it time and time again how much is enough enough is more than i've got now and that isn't just true for for modest incomes it's true for the wealthy take a look at this quote actually we'll put up two quotes here on the screen look at this one he who loves money will not be oh no uh, how much money is enough what did john d rockefeller say just a little more you'd think he'd have enough right john d. and this quote below summarizes the problem well And this one I I printed in your notes because this one is worthy of some extra reflection. Insatiable greed placing infinite claims on finite resources can have no other end. Well, the teacher's test produce the same results that we're talking about now thousands of years ago. There should be no surprises here. People have been testing this forever. What happens if I make it all about me? Will I ever be satisfied? No. Let's go on. Verses 11 through 12. When goods increase, they increase Who eat them? And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich won't let him sleep. We saw that two weeks ago. It was that same thing, that that sometimes you can have all these things and you just get so stressed because you got so much that you're trying to take care of. If If we were reading this, this is worth noting, if we were reading this in the original Hebrew, we'd see that a teacher, the teacher, uses a word, over and over and over again, that literally translates as eat. When he's talking about c- consumption here, he keeps using this word that is literally translated as eat over and over again in this section. In 511, in 512, in 517, in 518, in 519, I think that's significant. He's using the same word over, over and over again. You know, when we consume stuff, it's, it's, it's like eating. You're, you're satisfied for a while, but what happens? Eventually you get hungry again he's using this 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 powerful word eat we consume stuff like food and like food it satisfies only for a while now that's just one of the problems as he continues to talk about his findings in this test that's just one of the problems he also describes this verses 13 through 15 he says there is a grievous evil and in hebrew it is a sickening evil he says here's a sickening evil that i've seen under the sun riches are kept by their owner to his hurt and those riches were lost in a bad venture he is a father of a son but he has nothing in his hand as he came from his mother's womb he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry in his hand all right two weeks ago we talked about one of the things that the teacher was lamenting over and one of the things the teacher was lamenting over he said i've accumulated all this stuff And now I've got to turn it over. And I don't know if I'm going to turn it over to some knucklehead who's going to misuse it and squander it all the way. He also was stressed out because he said, maybe I'll turn it over to somebody else, but they didn't work for it. So what's that all about? Why do I have to work for it and they don't? Well, in this part right here, here's a third thing he's lamenting over. He says, okay, let's say I work really hard. I make sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. I've got all this stuff now, and then I lose it in a bad venture. So now I've done all that work and I've got nothing to turn over. He he just finds this maddening. He says, this is a what? A grievous, a sickening evil that that this happens. All right, and he's not done. Here's a couple more sickening evils, verses 16 and 17. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days, look at this phrase. This one really struck me. All his days he what? Eats in darkness. Talk about a vivid, vivid word picture there. Can you, can you picture people that, that you know or maybe picture times in your own life where you're consuming in darkness? You, you're just filling your life with all of this stuff either to chase status, and they don't really care. They're just envious, maybe. You're isolating yourself. You're in darkness. Maybe you are literally eating alone in darkness because you've been working all day, and your loved ones are asleep, or your loved ones are detached. Man, what a saddening, what a grievous evil that is. A person pours out their one and only life, accumulating wealth, And instead of it bringing lasting joy and contentment, it causes stress, it causes sleeplessness, it causes emptiness. Instead of bringing a richness to relationships, it brings isolation, it brings loneliness, it brings despair. They are eating in darkness, blind to what could be. As I was looking at different commentaries that speak about these texts, I came across this quote. They said, if anything is worse than the addiction that money brings... It is the emptiness that it leaves. All right. Is anyone at all surprised by the results of this test? No, right? You chase after wealth. You chase after self. You you just do all these kind of things. This is where it's going to go. No surprises here. And precisely because there's no surprises, then that's the danger. Because we can all come away from here saying, oh, I know this. I know this. Jason sent me a link um, this week, and I printed some of the findings or some of the stats from that link on the back of your notes so you could take this home and take a look at it. You know, if you you surveyed 10,000 Americans and you said, do you know this that we're talking about? Do you know that chasing after and accumulating all this stuff doesn't ultimately make you happy? If you ask 10,000 Americans this, what, 9,000 would probably say, of course I know that, of course I know that. And then you look at these stats. Do we know that? Do we know that? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. I once, uh, there's a big gap, I wrote here in my notes. There's a big gap between what we say and what we do. I once heard a story of a new young pastor, and he was assigned to a small rural church. It was his first Sunday, and he got up there, and he gave this very well-constructed sermon on the Bible. And so, in his tradition, in this little country church, what would happen is, at the end of the service, the pastor would go to the back first, so the pastor could shake all the hands as everyone went out. And so, of course, everyone with the new pastor, they're like, oh, good job, pastor, good job, good sermon, good sermon, good sermon. Well, the second week comes, the pastor gets up there, gives the exact same sermon. People are like, well, maybe he's young, maybe he's only got one, you know, right now, and and so... They wanted to be encouraging and affirming. So on their way out, it's good job, pastor. Good job, pastor. Good job, pastor. Week three comes. Same sermon. President of the con- congregation says, I'm waiting. I'm going to be the last person in line, <laughs> you know? And so everyone files out. Some people are like, good job, pastor, you know? President of the congregation says, hey, what is going on here? We gave you some grace on this last one, but three in a row, What are you doing? And the young pastor looks at this seasoned president of the congregation and says, hey, when you start living it, I'll stop preaching it. Oh. Man, I would have to hear the same sermon every day, (laughs) you know, because change is hard, isn't it? It's hard. Change is hard. I came across this quote when I was doing my research this week. Here's the thing, though. Just because it's hard doesn't mean we can't push in, right? Right? It is the breathtaking stupidity of sin rather than simply its wrongness that often strikes the biblical authors. Isn't that true? For those of you you know, we sometimes we read these things in scripture and they're just like saying, What are you thinking? Right? Here's an example of what that commentator is talking about. Look at these strong words that Paul uses as he's coaching a young pastor named Timothy. Look at the strength of these. These words. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hopes where? On God. Who richly provides us with everything to, what's the next word? Enjoy. Remember that word, enjoy. With everything to enjoy. They're to do good. To do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What a contrast here between eating in darkness and truly experiencing life. If we believe something, good intentions become good works. If we really believe it, if we really believe it. I said we'd hold up a mirror. Here we go. We'll put this up on the screens. This is also in your notes. Where are you today? Where are you today? Not where do you hope to be? Not, not where are your good intentions? Where are you today on what we call the stewardship continuum here? Are you at, keep all of it, everything that comes my way is mine. Are you at, share some. Are you at, all right, God, you get my first and my best before I do anything else. Or are you at this other place of joyful stewardship? Where are you at today? If Ecclesiastes teaches us anything, it teaches us the only moment you've got to work with is which moment? The one in front of you. That's the only one that's guaranteed. In a world where time and chance can undo anything, right? Except what God wants to happen in a world like this. All you have is the moment in front of you. How are you stewarding it? This section, this was fascinating. This section uh, in Ecclesiastes that we've been reading, the section that comes right before it is about worship. And it specifically highlights our words when it comes to being a worshiper. It says this, this, is, this comes immediately before the section that we read. It says this, guard your steps. This is four through seven, kind of smooshed together. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For when dreams increase, when words grow many, there is vanity, there's hell. And it's immediately following these instructions that talk about the words coming out of our mouth that then all of a sudden we see that eat, 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 consume, consume, consume. The words that come out of our mouths matter. What we consume and what we bring into our lives matters too. If we want to be a sincere worshiper of the living God, these things matter. They matter. Our actions are the true measure of what we believe, what we say, what we do. If you want to pursue that joyful stewardship, joyful stewardship this morning, not as a good intention, but as a sincere response that you take in faith, here's three commitments to act on. Three things you can do starting today. Number one, you want to run towards joy. God first giving is the starting line. That's the starting line. Now this term giving can be misleading. It can be just Why is it misleading? It's misleading because what do we have to give? It's not ours, right? Anything that we have is a gift, including the talents and abilities that we have that can produce and that can, can add to stuff in our lives. Everything we have is a gift. If we're at share some, when it comes to our faith walk, this step from share some to God first giving, it is painful. It is painful. Oh, it's painful. Because you have to have our mind telling our flesh that it's worth it. And it feels like what we're doing is we're giving something that's ours to God. If you want to get, though, from share some to joyful stewardship, the pass through, it's God first giving. And if you're not sure what that looks like, we put some resources. There's a, a message series that we did many years ago called Untwisting the Tithe that you could, could check out there. But here's the thing. The reason I don't want to spend too much time on this one, here's the thing about God first giving. If you only take that step, then you're not going to get to joyful. You're going to get to guilt, right? Guilt-generated or guilt-based giving. And as we've often said at Emmanuel, guilt is a low-octane fuel, isn't it? It is a low-octane fuel. If you're giving out of guilt, that voice in your head gets toxic really, really quick because it focuses on all the myselfing that you could do with that, right? With the stuff. And what a tragedy it would be, what a tragedy it would be for us not to enjoy, enjoy the gifts that God's given us. Look how many times, I'm, we're going to pick up now where we left off in Ecclesiastes. Look how many times joy shows up. This is verses 18 through 20. Behold, I have seen, oh behold, what I have seen to be a good and good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You run the race well, you get to the end and the pain just fades away. If anything, the pain magnifies the joy later, right? Maybe you had that experience. Joyful stewardship is the target. Joyful stewardship. So we want to keep going beyond just the God first giving. All right, and here's a thing that helps so much with that. If you want to keep moving beyond God first giving, meaningful living, that's the next one. Meaningful living, that's the high octane fuel, isn't it? That is the high-octane fuel when you're living a life of purpose and meaning. And all of a sudden, you're like, I've got stuff. I can use it for a higher and better purpose. God-first giving gets you to the starting line. It's meaningful living. That's your Gatorade. That's your carbo-loading. That is putting on your headphones and putting on that song that just makes you go, right? That's what happens with meaningful living. If there's anything worse than the addiction that wealth brings, it is the emptiness that selfish consumption leaves. In contrast, when you're doing stuff that matters, and that takes all kinds of forms, doesn't it? Certainly helping the poor, but it goes way beyond that. When you're doing stuff that matters, isn't it true that you're not as concerned about these other things, right? When you're doing stuff that matters, the very concept of accumulating stuff for the sake of status or accumulating stuff in excess, it begins to make as much sense as door dashing a Manny's Steakhouse takeout meal for 10 every night just for you, just because you can, right? It, it, It takes on that kind of silliness. When you, when you think of it, if you're living a life that matters. So God first giving, it gets you to the starting line, but it gets you there with a got to. I have to do that. This is entry level. If you're going to follow Jesus, God first giving is part of that, right? It's the got to. But now you're getting to the I get to. I get to be a part of a life that is truly life. That's where meaningful living takes us. And then that brings us to number three. Oh, hevel less living. It frees you to fly have a less living frees you to fly. Imagine trying to run around that track with one of these things. Can you imagine that? We were um, at a soccer game last night and I was talking to one of the, the dads and he was saying he lost a hundred pounds in the last year. Can you imagine how much lighter he feels? Right? You don't want to be carrying this thing around the track. Or hundreds of these things on those stats that that I got from Jason. Take a look at stat number one. How many items? Say it out loud. How many items are in the average American home? Three hundred thousand. Do you think there's a couple of those? Maybe you think you could buy with two hundred ninety-nine thousand, maybe? Right? Hevel less. Notice I didn't say hevel free. I didn't say hevel free, and I didn't say that on purpose. Your goal isn't necessarily to get rid of everything. Great gear can improve your performance. Can I get an amen to that? As a track runner, if you've got better shoes, it helps. If you're on a better track, it helps. Emmanuel Children's Home, if they don't have a kitchen, feeding the kids is a lot harder, right? Right? many of you, you are stewarding your homes so well. Your home is a place you're welcoming people into. It's a place where great moments happen. We can steward these gifts. It's not about heavily free. It's about lighter, right? Less. It's about casting off stuff that you don't need or stuff that's weighing you down. Stuff has its place, The key to discern what is to discern what helps us run well and what helps us rest well. If it doesn't help you rest well, if it doesn't help you run well, then why do you have it? There's at least a few items that probably are weighing us down. Here's one of countless scriptures that speak to this. It was part of our worship experience earlier, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. therefore. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, every weight and sin, which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Joy. Who for the joy That was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There's that word joy again. When we're able to shift our gaze from the stuff to the source of all good things and the life that he's calling us to joy follows that joy follows that it's captured really, really well in a really, really old painting. Um, if you're a note taker, you might want to write this down or even look it up right now on your phone here. There's an old, old painting called The Money Lender and His Wife. This thing's old. It's like 15th century, something like that. And anyway, here's, here's, here's the, the picture. It's probably hard to see on these screens. So you might want to jot down the reference so you can see the details that I'm about to describe here. If you only give the, the painting a quick look, what you see is a money lender. And in his hand, he's got a coin. He's got a scale. And he's measuring this all out. And his wife is distracted by the coin. She's distracted by the coin. But if you look closer and you have a vivid image in front of you, you see what she's distracted from. She has a book in front of her. And if you look closely at that book, that's Mary with Jesus. It must be some sort of Bible that she's distracted from as she's looking at the money. And if you look closer still in this painting, there's a little circle at the bottom by the Bible. And so if your eyes made it to the Bible, it's not a far jump to see that little circle. That little circle is a mirror. And that mirror is off. It's, it's looking at, a, at something that's unfolding. And the something that's unfolding is there's a, a window. And in that window the bars of the window form a cross and there's a person who's reaching out towards that cross. And art historians, at least this is what I've heard, art historians will tell you the face of the person reaching out to that cross is the artist who painted this picture. Man. We all know. We all know. We all know we're chasing after stuff where that leads. Today, Will you commit or recommit to focusing your eyes on Jesus who ran really, really well, amen, and ran really, really light? Today, let's do it. Let's just make that commitment to say, God, I want to move that direction of joy, joyful stewardship, to get to that spot where everything I can look at is a gift from you, everything that comes our way. So today, God, my first play is to give to you. God, help me to find meaningful activity, that work beneath the work that we talked about earlier in the series, and let me go through everything. Let me let go of everything that's holding me down. Let me go from 300,000 this week to 290, whatever, that. right? Well, we have a very concrete way we can seal that commitment, if you want to make it. It's a sacrament that we call here Holy Communion. When we participate in the sacrament, we commemorate this event. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, as we try to say each time we celebrate this sacrament together, the only person at Emmanuel that's going to keep you from participating in the sacrament is you. If you can sincerely pray these prayers, that we're going to pray together, we welcome you to the Lord's table today. You know, I, I once heard someone say that a church should feel a lot more like a hospital waiting room than a job interview. In a job interview, what are you doing, right? Right? It's, I want to look my best. I want people to see me at my best. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell stories about that one time and where I set a record. Right? <laughs> That's what we want people to see. <laughs> a hospital waiting room is very different, isn't it? We come to the hospital waiting room saying, I'm broken. I want help. Help me, right? And we can all share that. Every one of us in this room, we all have a broken relationship with stuff. Please raise your hand if you've got a broken relationship with stuff, right? It takes different forms, doesn't it? We all do. We have a broken relationship. Let's come to God on that. Confess it before him. He already knows. (laughs) Secrets out. Let's come to him, and let's come to him today for for the purpose of getting well. That's his desire. He wants you to experience more joy. He wants you to get well. He will send His Spirit into your life. He invites us to become part of a community with other people who are broken too, and this is just one. Raise your hand if you got another broken area besides stuff. <laughs> All right. yeah, I got three hundred thousand plus. You know that's my my stat. I can, Amen. Right. So let's come together to that Savior who wants to help. So I want. To...